This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Alison Russell, a powerful singer who has written dramatic songs with catchy melodies about being abused by her white, racist, adoptive father. Her biological father is black. She sometimes escaped by sleeping in a park or cemetery. She'll sing in our studio and will play tracks from her new album, The Returner, which has songs about reclaiming her body. Also, Kat Bohannon will talk about her new book, Eve, which explores the development of the female body, from its ability to produce milk to why women menstruate and why women's bodies for so long have been left out of biological and medical research. And David Biancooli will review Wes Anderson's adaptations of Roald Dahl short stories. All four are now streaming on Netflix. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Allison Russell, sings original songs in a powerful voice that rings out. Some of her songs are about a subject that many people feel they have to keep a secret. She was physically and sexually abused by her adoptive father throughout her childhood until she left home at age 15. She has a song about one night when she was in high school and had to escape him. She ran to the home of her girlfriend, her first love, and tapped on her window asking to be let in. As we learn in other songs, some nights she escaped her adoptive father by sleeping in the park in a cemetery, or sheltering in a cathedral. She also has songs about learning that she's capable of being loved and re-entering her body after having had to mentally detach herself from it to survive. Her mother is white, her biological father is black, and her adoptive father, her mother's husband, is a white racist. Allison sings about that, too. After performing in bands for many years, she now records under her own name, her first solo album, Outside Child, released in 2021, was nominated for three Grammys, won the Americana Award for Album of the Year, and won a Juno Award, the Canadian equivalent of a Grammy, for Contemporary Roots Album of the Year. 
Russell grew up in Montreal. I expect her new album, The Returner, will get multiple nominations and awards, too. She's going to sing some of her songs for us, but let's start with the opening track of The Returner. The lyric is about saying goodbye to her traumatic past. The song is called Springtime. Present Springtime from Allison Russell's new album, The Returner. Allison Russell, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. I love your voice, and I love your songs. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. That song is about learning to live in your body again after having to dissociate from it when you were abused. How did you start writing such personal songs, sharing your story about being abused by your stepfather who became your adoptive father? Well, I think it's survival in a sense, you know, it's, and it's also reclamation. And it's a way to, I was trained to silence, you know, I was conditioned to continually lie. And so for me, breaking silence has been very healing and empowering. And I do feel that these cycles of abuse and violence flourish with our silence and that we need to get loud in order to break them. Did you keep it a secret because you wanted to, or did your father threaten you that if you said anything to anyone, you would um, face severe consequences? Yes, I was threatened, and I was also um, sort of brainwashed over many years. Things like playing court, where after a violation, he would have me play court, where he would pretend to be you know, a, a, a police officer or a lawyer asking if I had been uh, touched inappropriately, and I was to lie, and then I would be given a what in Canada we have um, girl guides rather than scouts. I would be given a girl guide cookie after saying the correct lie. Uh, so it was, you know, this was ongoing from before I was five years old. You know, so it, that's a kind of a. I think it's difficult for people that don't have experience of uh, chronic abuse uh, with within a family to kind of wrap their heads around the depth of the brainwashing that happens for a child under those circumstances. But it's a lifetime of decolonizing one's own mind. And I don't know that I'll ever be fully done with that process. But for me, writing songs, singing about it, speaking about an issue that affects, you know, one in three women, one in four men, and one in two trans or non-binary or gender expansive people, um, for me, speaking up about it and singing about it has been very, very healing. 
I have never heard a story like that where you were trained from the age of five to play court. And what's really interesting about that, too, is that later you actually testified in court against your father after your parents took custody of your niece and nephew, who you were very close to, and you learned that your father was alone with them, or at least with one of them. So after being trained to, like, lie in court, what was it like for you to actually testify against him so that he would not have custody? Well, luckily for me, I never actually had to testify. I charged him. And the investigators did such an excellent job of finding, unfortunately, other women that he had abused. The case was not just my word against his. And so his defense attorney ended up advising him to plead guilty to get a lighter sentence, which indeed he did get a very light sentence. But yes, I was able to charge him. And that was uh, very cathartic and healing. I can imagine because he told you, here's what you have to say. And you totally defied him. Yeah. And brought him down for that. Held him accountable. Yeah, right. Um, So I want to play another song, and this might be my favorite song on the album, although it's hard to choose a favorite with so many good songs. But it's called Demons, and it's really about exorcising those demons and how they don't like sunlight. Um, When you sing the word demons in the chorus, you sound possessed. Can you, before we hear it, can you describe writing it? Well, it was actually joyful to write it. It was quite playful to write it. I'm playing with a lot of different uh, imagery, the idea that, first of all, black women, queer women, queer people have been demonized, playing with that, but also the idea that we can be light sometimes with our trauma. We can use humor to help us get through it. So let's hear it. This is Alison Russell from her new album, The Returner. The song is Demon. Alison Russell from her new album, The Returner, and the song is called Demons. I just love how you sound on that, and I love the song. So what was the meaning of demons to you? To me, demons is so layered. It's the inner demons. It's the 
the ways that we are demonized unfairly moving through the world as a queer black woman. I have experienced a lot of that. I've been called the N-word. I've been called an Oreo. I've been spat on in the street, you know, just refused bathroom service. Those kinds of experiences that come from people demonizing uh, one's identity and dehumanizing their their fellow equal human beings um, under a kind of a misapprehension and fear which turns into hatred. You know, of course, hatred is always just fear in a in a mask. To escape your abusive father, you um, slept in a cemetery, in your shelter in a cathedral. You slept in a park. Did you feel safe? You know, strangely, I felt so much safer sleeping in the cemetery than I ever did in the home of the people that called themselves my family. And I was... I was so lucky to be in Montreal. You know, that city has art at its heart. There are so many refuges. I was able to, you know, go to the free days at the Musée des Beaux-Arts. I was able to listen to the conservatory students and take a nap in, at the, in the McGill students' lounge. My high school was an alternative high school moving in new directions. And we had a student lounge and I would go in there and sleep before class. There were 24-hour cafes where I would go and play chess till all hours with the McGill students or, you know, the, the older men that would just seem to always be there playing chess. I, I found ways to somehow be safe and warm enough in the winter. And then eventually, when I met my first girlfriend, Persephone, I started to stay with her. And I found an apartment when I was 16 with three other girls from my class and started doing terrible telemarketing jobs. But it got me, you know, it, I was able to get the rent together, which was only $150 in our shared apartment. And um, I got through it. And I was able to get through high school and my first year of Cégep, which is sort of a, a junior college kind of a thing in Quebec. I want to point out, you grew up in Montreal. It gets cold there, yes, really it cold. Does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can only sleep outside for a certain yeah. time of year. Yeah. Um, but really, when you are sleeping in a cemetery surrounded by graves, um, some people are just spooked in sunlight in a cemetery. Um, did you feel comfortable there? Did you have a hiding place? I felt so comfortable. I mean, the, the Montréal Cemetery is so beautiful. It's like a nature preserve as well. So there's, you know, you are surrounded by trees and grass. It's incredibly peaceful. There are mausoleums you can shelter in the kind of nooks and crannies of. It's beautiful. There's a lot of... I, I'm actually fascinated by cemeteries. I, I love them, and I, I think it's very North American fear the fear of cemeteries. I've noticed when I travel in Europe that they're often used as a park. You know, you see young lovers making out, people having picnics. It, it, it's just part, life is going on in and around those who are no longer with us, but who are so beloved that we, you know, erected um, memorials in their to, in their honor. And there's just something so beautiful about it to me. I'm not afraid of cemeteries. I quite love them. And I love reading the inscriptions. And I love thinking about the lives and the different times. It's sort of a time capsule as well, a cemetery, and the different ways that, um, you know, as you go through the, the, the decades, the things that you notice that are different. I'm, I'm fascinated by cemeteries. I quite love them. My guest is Alison Russell. Her new album is called The Returner. We'll talk more and hear more of her great music after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. Let's get back to my interview with Allison Russell. Her new album is called The Returner. Allison, your father, your biological father was black and from Grenada. You never met him until you were 30. Your mother was a teenager. She was 17 when she had you. And then your stepfather became your adoptive father after she married him when you were in foster care. Um, Your adoptive father was a white racist. What message did he give you about being black? Uh, That I was less than human and that I was lucky to be raised by him because I didn't have uh, the disadvantage of being raised within black culture. These are his words, obviously, not mine. Um, You know, he was ideologically abused by his community. When we raise children with violent ideologies like white supremacy, it's abusing those children. That's my belief. And it is also he was also abused by his family, you know, and and so he brought all of that pain and and anger and with him when he uh, moved up to Canada. And, you know, it's we are all so closely interconnected. We want to compartmentalize things and it's impossible to do so. I want you to play a song for us. You brought your banjo with you. It's one of uh, the instruments you play. You also play clarinet um, and guitar. So Eve Was Black is about what we've been talking about. So um, would you, before you play it, would you talk to us about writing it? It started off as a poem um, and then slowly evolved into a song. And my dear... My dear chosen sister, Sister Strings, uh, helped me with the first iteration of it, and um, and it became it became clear to me that it lived in the world of the Returner, and in fact, is one of the the backbone songs of that record. It's sort of a little trilogy backbone within the record of Eve was black, demons, and snake life. So Eve was black is really kind of an open letter of truth and reckoning but also of forgiveness, that there's always a way back to the circle. And my abuser has no power over me anymore, and I can begin to have 
some compassion and some pity for them at this point. But we can't hide from the truth, which is that we are one human family, inalienably, intrinsically, undeniably equal. And the work is really just to have that acknowledged, protected, under the law, everywhere. One of the lines in this song that we're about to hear is, do you hate or do you lust? And I kind of think you gave us the answer already. He did both. Correct. He hated and he lusted. Yeah. And he was able to fulfill that lust with you because of how much he hated black people and saw them as less than human. So would you play Eve Was Black for us? And I'm going to ask you to just do an excerpt because there's so much I want to squeeze into this interview. Sure, happy to. Eve was black, haven't you heard? The mother of ours died and good. Eve was black, didn't you know? Is that why you hate my black skin so? Is that why you hate my black skin so? Do I remind you of what you lost? Do you hate or do you lust? Do you despise or do you yearn? To return, to return, to return Back to the motherland, back to the garden Back to your black skin, back to the innocence Back to the shine you lost when you enslaved your children What do you hope for as you tie the rope? What do you hope for as you horse me What do you hope for as you watch me swing with the witness tree salvation bring? Do I remind you of what you lost? Do you hate or do you lust? Do you despise or do you yearn? To return, to return, to return. Back to the motherland, back to the garden, back to your black skin, back to the innocence, back to the shine you lost when you enslaved your children. Oh, my father, oh, my mother, oh, my sister, oh, my brother, oh, my cousin, I'm my pet can't watch this. Can't watch this, can't watch this with more black blood, with more black blood. Thank you, Allison. That is a powerful song. Um, And I should mention that the recorded version of that song is on her new album, The Returner. So um, your adoptive father was from a sundown town in the U.S. And a sundown town was a town where black people are told, you can't be here after the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. Where did he grow up? Like what city, what he state? He grew up in Indiana, in White County, Indiana. I'm not sure of the exact town. I know the family moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. There's one another thing I, I want to mention about him is that um, I don't know when this was, but after you had moved far away, a woman came forward and accused him of sexually assaulting her, and he did time for it. I think he was sentenced for three years. Yeah, well, so it, I charged him, and during the investigative process, the reason I didn't have to go to court was because the investigator did a very thorough and good job and found other women that he had abused. 
Oh, that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. So it was f- through you. Through the investigation, correct. Good for you. Yeah. Um, so did he serve the, the, the whole the whole three years? He did. He could have been out in nine months um, with if, if, if they had granted his first parole. But um, the prison psychiatrist believed that he was a high risk of uh, reoffending and so recommended that he serve the full sentence. Do you know if he has, in fact, reoffended? I really hope not. I know that he is now, you know, he is on a list of, of sex offenders. He has to check in with the police. He's not allowed to be unsupervised with children, so I have high hopes that he's not able to um, to do to any other child what he did to me. When you left Montreal to get away from your parents, you moved to Vancouver, which is kind of as far away as you can get in Canada yeah. <laughs> from where you grew up. <laughs> yeah. um, and you, you started, I think, like in, in the folk music scene, and one of your instruments, as we heard, is, is banjo. Um, did you feel like that was going to be your home, more like folk-oriented music? Well, you know, to me, I have a broader definition of folk and Americana probably than most people. Um, I think that it is a kind of such a vast umbrella. It encompasses every genre of, of song, really. And so to me, it's all just sonic explorations that that naturally lead one to the next. And the reason I play banjo is because of Kermit the Frog, you know? What? That's <laughs> Kermit the Frog. I didn't know anything about the black diaspora growing up with white supremacists. I didn't know anything about the cultural heritage connection of, of the banjo being, uh, you know, the America's African instrument. I didn't know any of that when I first fell in love with the banjo. I fell in love with it because of the rainbow connection in Kermit the Frog. Right, and your band is called the Rainbow Coalition. The Rainbow yeah. Coalition, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's is a it, nod. It's a nod to both that, uh, Jim Henson, <laughs> Kermit Rock, and and of course Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers, who were able to form an incredibly uh, healing, harm-reducing coalition between the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, who were a Latine group, and uh, the Young Patriots, who were white Appalachians, formerly white supremacists, many of them, who found common cause in the 60s, in the south side of Chicago, to help one another with after-school programs, with medical programs, um, and and it was incredibly successful. And that was what, of course, eventually led to uh, Fred Hampton being assassinated, was the fact that he was very, very successfully building this multi-ethnic, multi-heritage coalition to help disrupt the poverty cycle. Congratulations on probably being the only person ever to bring together Fred Hampton and Kermit <laughs> in one tribute. I think that they're very closely related in spirit. I really do. Well, thank you. Thank you, Thank Terry. you so much. It was so great to talk with you and to hear you sing in our studio. And your music's just wonderful, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Thank you so much. Such an honor speaking with you. Thank you. Allison Russell's new album is called The Returner. In the last days of September, one per night, Netflix rolled out four short adaptations of equally short stories by Roald Dahl, the author of such well-known longer stories as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, and The Witches. Adapting these short stories for television and directing them is Wes Anderson, whose own longer works include Asteroid City, Rushmore, and a stop animation version of Dahl's The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Our TV critic David Biancouli says that, once again, as in that full-length film, the joining of Anderson's and Dahl's singularly strange visions 
makes for a perfect artistic union. Here's David's review. In addition to all the movie adaptations of Roald Dahl's works, from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory to the BFG, he's been no stranger to television. In the 1950s and 60s, Alfred Hitchcock used his TV anthology series to present classic versions of some of Dahl's creepier short stories. One was Lamb to the Slaughter, where a pregnant wife killed her unfaithful husband by clubbing him with a frozen leg of lamb, then roasting the murder weapon and serving it to the investigating detectives. Another was The Man from the South, which starred Peter Lorre and Steve McQueen as gamblers who entertained a fairly horrifying bet. Look, I'm devoted to gambling, but I have never asked anybody to put up more than he can afford to lose. What, for instance? Oh, I'm going to make it easy for you. Easy for you to win a car, I mean. Is that all right? I'm listening. I like the easy part. Well, I'm thinking of some small thing that you could afford to give away. And, and if you lose, well, you won't have to feel so bad, such as, such as the little thing on your left hand. My what? Is that so strange? He wins, he takes the car, I win, I take his finger. Is that so strange? Then, in the 70s and 80s, Roald Dahl himself appeared as the TV host of another anthology series, serving up new but inferior versions of those two stories of his, along with many others. That British series was called Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, and began, like Hitchcock's show, with a personal on-camera intro. I ought to warn you, if you haven't read any of my stories, that you may be a little disturbed by some of the things that happen in them. When I'm writing a short story, I'm haunted by the thought that I've got to hold the reader's attention for literally every second, otherwise I'm dead. And now, on Netflix, come new adaptations of four Roald Dahl short stories, all of them written for the screen and directed by Wes Anderson, and all of them featuring his dazzling fairy tale book visuals. The longest of these, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, is under 40 minutes. Others are half that length. But all of them are gorgeously filmed, wonderfully acted, and astoundingly faithful to the text and tone of the original prose. In addition to the unique look of these adaptations, Anderson takes a unique approach as well. He makes two brilliant artistic decisions. The first one is that he has a small repertory company playing all the major parts. So Rafe Fiennes, for example, plays not only a creepy rat-like exterminator in The Rat Catcher, among other roles, he also plays a version of Roald Dahl himself, providing occasional introductions and other observations, as in the opening scene setting up this series. Well, here we are now in the hut where I write. I've been in this hut for 30 years now. Well, it's important. Uh, Before I start, I like to make sure I have everything around me that I'm going to need. Um, Cigarettes, of course. Some coffee, chocolates. And always make sure I have a sharp pencil before I start. I have six pencils, and then I like to clean my writing board. So many bits of rubber. And finally, one starts. But the other brilliant approach in Anderson's telling of these tales is that he lets the various characters serve on occasion as their own narrators, 
looking at the camera directly and spouting descriptive passages and stage directions, breaking the fourth wall while still playing the scene. It's daring, but it works. And it has them doing it at warp speed, talking so rapidly it's almost hypnotizing. In the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, there are four different levels of narrative flashbacks or digressions, each with its own storyteller. One of them is Benedict Cumberbatch, who tells of Henry Sugar finding a book in a library, while, at the same time, playing the role of Henry Sugar. He was about to leave when his eye was caught and held by something quite different. It was so slim he never would have noticed it if it hadn't been sticking out a little from the books on either side. He pulled it from the shelf. It was actually nothing more than a cardboard exercise book of the kind that children use at school. The cover was dark blue, but there was nothing written on it. Then, as Henry opens the pamphlet to read it, the story is taken over by another Rep Company member, Dev Patel. He's a doctor telling his story, and also acting it out, of being visited by a man with an outrageous extrasensory claim. That man is played by yet another Rep Company member of this talented troupe, Ben Kingsley. My name is ZZ Chatterjee, head surgeon at Lords and Ladies Hospital, Calcutta. On the morning of the 2nd of December, 1935, I was in the doctor's restroom having a cup of tea. Three other doctors were present with me. Dr. Marshall, Dr. Mithra, and Dr. McFarlane. There was a knock on the door. Come in, I said. Excuse me, please. May I ask you gentlemen a favor? This is a private room, I said. Yes, I know, and I'm very sorry to burst in like this, but I have a most, I think, interesting thing to show you. All four of us were pretty annoyed and we didn't say anything. Gentlemen, I'm a man who can see without using his eyes. In addition to the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and the Rat Catcher, the other stories presented by Anderson on Netflix are The Swan and Poison, which was adapted by Dahl's own TV series, but terribly. Every one of these new TV offerings is spellbinding. And even if Netflix or Wes Anderson might not think of them as a modern TV anthology series right up there with Black Mirror, I sure do. David Biancoli is professor of television studies at Rowan University. Coming up, we'll hear from Kat Bohannon, author of the new book Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. Tanya Mosley has our next interview. Here's Tanya to introduce it. 
Back in 2012, writer Kat Bohannon went to see the movie Prometheus, Ridley Scott's prequel to the movie Alien. At the time, Bohannon was a grad student at Columbia University, and one scene in the movie stood out. An archaeologist, played by Numi Rapace, was impregnated with an alien. She asks the spaceship's surgery pod to help her remove it, and here's what happens next. Please verbally state the nature of your injury. I mean, cesarean. Error. This med pod is calibrated for male patients only. Please seek medical assistance elsewhere. That was a scene from the movie Prometheus, and one of the motivations behind Bohannon's new book. It's called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Bohannon says the movie scene points out a stark reality. For over a century, the female body has been left out of biological and medical research. And when scientists only study the male norm, we're getting less than half of the picture of human evolution. Bohannon's book attempts to trace the evolution of women's bodies and how that evolution has shaped our lives. The book reads like a user's manual for the female mammal, taking us through the Jurassic era to modern day, exploring everything from why we menstruate, are more likely to get Alzheimer's, and why we live longer. Kat Bohannon is a Ph.D. from Columbia University, where she studied the evolution of narrative and cognition. Her writing has appeared in various publications, including the Scientific American, Science, and the Georgia Review. Kat Bohannon, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks. Thanks. Nice to be here. You make me sound so fancy. I love it. (laughs) Well, you know, that Prometheus scene is make-believe, of course, but it is such a powerful example of how the male form is centered. You write about how in biological and medical sciences, there's something called the male norm. Can you describe what that is? Oh, absolutely. And this is something I only learned when I was a grad student, because you see, in the work I did, which was mostly with computers, I didn't actually have to, well, breed a bunch of mice and then make choices about what happens and who I would use in my research, right? I didn't work in mouse. I worked with computers. So that means that I didn't know that the majority of studies that use mice are only studying the males, which is this really kind of weird thing if you're not in biology, right? You're like, okay, why is this happening? It's not that there's some kind of evil cabal, like rubbing their hands together, saying, wah-ha-ha, I will understudy females. It's actually that when you conduct a scientific experiment, you want to control for as many factors as you can. You want a clean experiment. So what you do is you try and reduce confounds, reduce what's complicating what you're seeing. Well, usually the ovary is thought of as an unfortunate complication. Because in all mammals, there's an estrus cycle. There's this cycle of hormones that rises and falls, right? Some of us do it more quickly, like every month for people like you and me, maybe. And, you know, others, it takes longer if you're, say, a mouse. But nevertheless, your hormones, they're going up and down. And so that's complicating the experiment. So a decision was essentially made by many different people in biology a long time ago that, well, maybe we just won't study the females. Because the guys don't have that? This is so interesting. The male norm is such an issue, you write, that many papers don't even mention they only use male subjects. Yeah, absolutely. It's so assumed that there isn't this urge to say, yes, I did this thing that we're all doing. 
Now, some things are finally starting to change. There's been a big push at the National Institute of Health. There's been a big push in a number of different scientific bodies that say, oh, wait, 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 we're not studying the females. That's a problem. Things are working differently in female bodies. Now you need to actually say whether or not you're including them. But the thing is, is that the NIH only controls about 2% of the money that's funding a lot of uh, biomedical research in the United States. So... They have a big public place, but they don't push the bar as much as the journals who decide whether or not to publish a paper. That's where the real change is going to come from. That's really interesting. So just to go back a little bit, in in the Mm -hmm. 1970s, regulators strongly advised do not use female subjects in research to be of childbearing age for many of the reasons you mentioned, because of menstrual cycles and you can't really get a sample of women who are all having their menstruation at the same time and their hormonal shifts are happening at the same time. The National Institutes of Health managed to update some of the regulations in 1994, but you're saying that's such a small sliver. Can you give us another example of, of maybe how the male norm plays out in medicine? And what are the implications of not studying women's bodies? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to cover one thing quickly, and then I'll do that. So the reason we stopped studying women of reproductive age in clinical trials is because we didn't want to screw up babies, okay? It wasn't simply because of controlling for the neatness of science, because once you're dealing with human bodies, Mm -hmm. there is a potential that that body could become pregnant. And there is a problem with testing drugs on a body and not knowing what it might do to the fetus. So it's actually a shift then that happens in advising scientists that are doing biomedical research don't study women of reproductive age out of a good heart, right? But unfortunately, being of reproductive age is, well, anywhere from like 12 or 13 to in your early 50s. So that's the majority of our lives. And that's that's a big gap. So one of the ways that this ends up playing out in medicine today is that the vast majority of medicines that we end up taking, uh, prescription medicines, right, may not have been tested on female bodies at all, right? Because these regulations only recently shifted. It takes a certain amount of time to go from clinical trial to release to the public. And you're not obliged to go back and redo your experiments if you were already cleared to release your drug to the public. So effectively, we've been guinea pigs. Right. Okay. So if males are only used in the trials... Are doctors basically relying on anecdotal knowledge when prescribing to women based on based on body weight and age? Like I say in the book, that's often the case. Thankfully, we're starting to rewind. We're starting to learn a little bit more about this sort of free-for-all experiment wherein women take drugs in the public and then you see the effects afterwards. And we now know that opioid drugs are now famously processed different in typical female bodies, right? It often takes us longer to uh, recover from side effects and or we clear it from our systems too soon and then we feel like we need more. Opioids are common prescription pain killers. Okay. And that's where you get into danger zones for things like addiction. A common pattern for addiction is to front load a whole bunch of painkiller and then keep norming your body to it until you feel like you need more and you need more and you need more, right? So the thing is, in a female body that's taking opioid drugs, the way that her liver is metabolizing this drug will naturally make her a bit more prone. So while it's true that more men are addicted to opioids because that's a general addiction pattern, women are especially vulnerable. And it can really, really, really influence things like pregnancy and postpartum recovery and, well, anything in our lives. Really, 
I'm astounded by this. You gave another example, sex differences for general anesthesia. Research only began, it really only began in 1999 for women? Mm, This is the moment at which uh, somebody was conducting a study, and it was a bunch of different research hospitals. So for once, they actually had a bunch of men and women included in the study. So that's great. But they didn't set out to test sex differences. They just wanted to know, is this new special EEG machine, it's a kind of monitoring machine, yeah, is it um, usefully influential in monitoring anesthesia effectively? And it turned out, yeah, sure, the machine was kind of fine. But what they really found out is that women uh, come out of anesthesia faster, no matter, even if they're the same weight as the guy, right? They still need a different profile of treatment in anesthesia. And it's actually true that women are more likely to wake up on the surgery table, which to me, not a great thing. Well, of course, of course. (laughs) Not what I'm looking forward to in the day. I was actually wondering about some of the current day health disparities we see in men versus women. We know that more women are known to die from heart disease, for instance. Can these types of disparities be linked to evolution or discrepancies in health care or a little bit of both? I always assume a little bit of both because... You know, yes, our bodies evolved over hundreds of millions of years, but we also live in the societies we live in with the disparities we face. So it's absolutely the case that you can take two relatively identical bodies, but then make one body suffer more uh, through various types of injustice and medical inequity, right? And then you should not expect to see the same outcomes in a body that didn't have to go through that same sort of suffering, right? So that's inevitably going to be the case. Both are going to be a factor. But it is true that the typical male cardiovascular system is, in a word, a bit more crap than the female, actually, across its lifetime. That's a that's something that um, male bodies really struggle with. Um, and it's a characteristic pattern in aging, right? As male bodies get older, they have uh, known problems with cardiovascular disease. One of the main reasons that heart disease can be such a killer for so many women is that our symptoms can be different. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's uh, something that thankfully has gotten some more airtime lately because awareness saves lives. Right. So, you know, when you have uh, what we would call a heart attack uh, in women, it may instead of feeling like that pressure on the chest, that classic model, it may feel more like severe indigestion. Some women report just feeling weirdly anxious with no history of anxiety in their lives, you know. Right. So this is not an evolutionary thing that has happened in women's bodies that we're more prone to heart disease. It's just that the symptoms show up differently and we've centered the male norm in understanding what heart disease might look like. I think you're absolutely right. I really do. Um, There are some ways in which women's, um, most women's Uh, cardiovascular systems are slightly more vulnerable. We're slightly more likely to get strokes, although that's tied to how we live longer. You know, but for the most part, what's going on, I think, and how vulnerable women are to heart disease today is absolutely that disparity in studying sex differences, which also means that we're going to end up having even less the more awareness is spread, right? Which means effectively the contrast between men and women will become more severe as we improve treatment for women. You break the book down by categorizing several Eves, not just one, starting Mm -hmm. 205 million years ago with a mammal called Morgi, Mm -hmm. all the way to Homo sapiens, which evolved roughly 300,000 years ago. 
Yep. Morgie is a cross between a weasel and a mouse. Why is Morgie important in understanding the evolution of what we now know as the human female? So Morgie is an exemplar genus. Uh, It's very scientific words. She's not exactly our direct ancestor, but she's an animal a lot like our ancestor that we know a lot about. We found a lot of her fossils over time. We can infer a lot about her behavior. And the really interesting thing about Morgie is that most think this is kind of the dawn of milk. The reason uh, so many cisgender women have breasts is because we evolved to make milk, and this is just sort of the way we do it. But we had milk way before we had breasts. We had milk before we had nipples. We used to kind of sweat it out through these little hairy patches, right? Now I want to talk a little bit about how the evolution of the female womb and live births came to be. There is a powerful statement that you make in the book about this, that milk started under the feet of dinosaurs, but live birth took hold in an apocalypse. Say more about this. Yeah, so this thing that we do, this giving birth to live babies, seems normal because all human beings do it, but it's actually pretty nuts. It's actually kind of crazy not to lay eggs. That's still the dominant way in which we have offspring, okay? So that mammals are all giving birth to live babies is is just incredibly innovative. There are also some squamates. There are some lizards. There are some sharks that do it, okay? But for the most part, this is a mammalian story. And the moment at which we really start saying, okay, this is what mammals are going to do and we're going to do it the way we do it, is right around the apocalypse, right around when the asteroid takes out the vast majority of dinosaurs and all that are left are some disgruntled birds, right? So this is the moment at which that happens. So the placenta is evolving before then, but our body plan and the body plan of marsupials are kind of head and head at that point. We're all just kind of weird little beasties doing our thing, but whether or not the majority of mammals end up like marsupials who end up giving birth to teeny tiny little things and then finish it out in a pouch, or whether we're going to do it the way we do it, which is, you know, longer just stations, bigger babies, that kind of thing. It's head and head. And we don't know exactly why, but more marsupial ancestors died off in that massive fallout after the apocalypse than our ancestors. And that's why we have the kinds of uteruses and placentas that we have. Uteri, I prefer, but it could be either way. Um, And it's also why we only have, for most of us, one vagina instead of two or more. Okay, Kat, there is a chapter in this book that you explicitly say you did not want to write, and that is the chapter on the brain. (laughs) Why were you so hesitant to write about the possible differences in brains of male versus females? Oh, gee, Tanya, can you imagine? I know, I know. Let's get into it. Yeah. I mean, look, I am a queer woman sciencing in public. All right. That's kind of like what I'm doing right now, which, you know, has a history of already being a complicated thing to do. And now, because I'd set myself up with the project of this book, I can't ignore the evolution of hominin encephalization that our brains got bigger, in other words. You know, our brains got very much bigger. It's very much a story of where we come from. It's also like the seat of how we think about what makes us human, right? It's like, who am I? Well, I am definitely in my brain, right? I am absolutely a human being because I have the brain I do. And then I need to go and say, okay, 
are there sex differences? You know, so like for at least a year, I am digging into the research and I am bracing myself because I have to. I have to be ready to find answers that I don't like, Mm. right? I have to. It's my job. Like I would be doing a bad job if I didn't. So I am a hardcore (laughs) feminist. It's pretty obvious, you know, and I'm just like gripping the edge of the desk like, all right, science, what do you got for me? And I was so, so grateful after a year of like rage writing, right? After like a year of like, pulling back and saying, okay, what's here? What's really, really, really here? You know, to see, oh, man, if you hold two brains in your hands, now don't go like stealing them from hospitals, but like (laughs) if you manage to have two cadaver brains in your hands, human brains, you actually will not be able to tell which is male and which is female. And that's true by almost any measure, even if you are using microscopes, even if you are using the most careful instruments. The only way to actually do it is to sluice the whole thing down in a blender and sequence the DNA and look for the Y chromosome. Because the brain is actually made of many, many different regions. And there are some typical sex differences in some features in some regions, But the differences are so subtle, and even a brain that might have a so-called female typical, um, you know, region would then end up having a male typical other region. You see, you end up with a mosaicism. You end up with a kind of mosaicism, and, and that means that, like, okay, okay, what human brains really evolved to be is remarkably similar, more similar in many ways, both in structure and in overall functionality, than they are for other mammals. And that's actually really interesting. Kat Bohannon, thank you so much for this conversation in this book. Thank you. Kat Bohannon is the author of the new book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. She spoke with Fresh Air's co-host, Tanya Mosley. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Henry Bodonato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.